This week on the Tech on Tap podcast, we cover machine learning, AI, and how NetApp ONTAP is empowering big data to get bigger. Welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast with Justin Parisi and Sully the Monster. I love NetApp. Oh, yeah. I love NetApp because it's so funny. Hello and welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast. My name is Justin Parisi. I'm in the studio to here today with uh, Andrew Sullivan. Andrew, pay attention. I am always paying attention to you, Justin. You weren't. You were on your phone. Were you texting me? I didn't say it was full attention. No. But so, uh, speaking of phones, um, that phone has a lot of interesting technologies within it, and some of it has to do with machine learning and AI. And we're going to talk a little bit about that today. And to do that, we brought in Santosh Rao, uh, the one of the senior technical directors here at NetApp. So Santosh, if you could introduce yourself and tell us where we can find some more information about you. Sure. Thanks, Justin. Thanks for having me here today. Uh, and uh, I'm Santosh Rao, Senior Technical Director with uh, Data on Tap Engineering Group. Uh, and I look at uh, a variety of roles. Uh, I've been the architect for a ONTAP SAN product in the past and a variety of features that were built on the SAN platform. And uh, over, the, over the recent uh, year or two, I've been focused on our uh, emerging third platform uh, workloads and ecosystems and what kind of uh, uh, joint feature opportunities we can drive for the emerging uh, workload uh, space. So that's where I've been over these last few uh, years. So Justin kind of already gave away the punchline here, but when you say emerging third-platform workloads, what are you referring to? So as we look at how customers are evolving their uh, application architectures, they're shifting away from monolithic scale-up platforms and uh, premium enterprise uh, vendors that offer traditional uh, RDBMS or BI platforms uh, to a web-scale, linearly scale-out architecture consisting of open source components. So as you look at the database world, for example, customers are starting to evolve away from traditional Oracle SQL, even MySQL and Postgres towards uh, a variety of NoSQL databases that are designed for much higher scale and performance. Uh, Similarly, as you look at traditional BI, customers are evolving into open source Apache frameworks such as Hadoop and Spark and and a variety of uh, emerging deep learning frameworks that all attempt to solve uh, the customer business issues at a much lower cost point and to do that at a much higher scale to meet the needs of today's web scale deployment. So so we're seeing that shift and that's that's an interesting space for us to uh, look to evolve ONTAP into as it's been the, the unified workload workhorse for NetApp and has naturally evolved into new areas uh, as customers have found themselves dealing with new, new uh, business problems and new workloads. So to give this some context, do you have any use cases or any examples of an application or a, a business problem that is being solved using these new, uh, this new generation of tools? Absolutely. We are looking at a variety of uh, scenarios now where our traditional customers across verticals are finding themselves competing uh, with a web scale vendor such as Amazon or Netflix or uh, uh, or in a variety of uh, cases, Facebook and Google and so on. And so what the uh, 
what the customer experience is, is that these web scale vendors are able to provide simple, easy to consume online workflows uh, with the ability to influence customer buying decisions uh, and the ability to use technologies like AI, deep learning, and business intelligence with Hadoop and Spark to be able to recommend uh, what a customer could be buying and what a customer could be picking up as an additional sale in that workflow. Uh, so on the one hand, traditional brick-and-mortar customers are dealing with the online onslaught, and on the other hand, they're dealing with the technology onslaught that these web scale platforms bring in, which are able to influence customer buying real-time. Uh, and, and a classic example of that is technology like Amazon and Netflix, where you're in the middle of the workflow, you're seeing what else you could be picking up. In the middle of the workflow, you may have a one-click uh, experience that just makes it seamless to be able to, to pick up that new technology. And so being able to adopt those new capabilities to compete effectively with Amazon, Netflix, and, and, and Facebook, and so on, means customers need to evolve to these new emerging workloads. And that's where we see uh, the, the arrival of technologies like AI and deep learning into the mainstream. Yeah, one of the phrases that I, I've kind of grown to love over the last few years is if a service, particularly an online service, is free, it means that you're really the product, right? And they're collecting information, whether it's, you know, literally in some cases where you're walking and what you're doing using the GPS on your phone or it's tracking your web surfing habits or all kinds of other data. They're bringing that back into a location and they're leveraging these tools, right, AI, deep learning, machine learning, et cetera in order to analyze, in order to take advantage, and ultimately in order to figure out how to better sell you things. Yeah, I mean, one of the examples I've seen, uh, or I've, it's interesting to me, is the fact that they can take your GPS location, know that you're in a store in a certain aisle, and as you walk down this aisle, they're like, hey, you might want these Oreos. Ping, ping! They're on sale, two ninety nine, right? So, I mean, it's, it's, you know, all this data has been gathered about your habits and what you've been buying and what you've been looking at. Uh, so it, and you can see it in your in your feeds, like your Facebook feeds or your you know Amazon shopping feeds. Hey, you might like this recommended for you, you know. And they're they're doing this all in the back end with large data sets. And you know, let's just play a little buzzword bingo here because you know Santosh has given us a lot of information, but we're talking about things like, and correct me if I'm wrong, Santosh, but Internet of Things, uh, the big data workloads, um, data lakes, right? I mean, is that essentially what we're dealing with here? Yes, absolutely. That's that's exactly what we're doing here. As you look at the uh, the uh, shift to a more uh, um, a more uh, closed loop feedback cycle, where the customer workflow uh, is interacting real time with the core backends of customer um, data centers and infrastructure to be able to influence each other in the uh, in the buying cycle. So whether it be uh, a real time experience. Uh, with a point-of-sale workflow or whether it be a real-time experience around intelligence and that influences uh, business decision-making or whether it be post-processed historical analysis that influences uh, change in strategy, change in direction, and so on. The combination of real-time in the workflow intelligence coupled with post-processed intelligence is, is fundamentally here to stay because what we've found is the web scale vendors have used that to their advantage. 
And the reality is traditional customers that we have partnered with uh, for years and years are finding that they've got to adopt the same in order to compete with the uh, with the new set of upscale competitors that they have to deal with. So whether it be Walmart dealing with Amazon, whether it be uh, a Costco or a Whole Foods uh, looking at you know how a new uh, web scale experience ought to be. All of that involves a shift towards technology uh, seen in a different way than what we've seen with traditional second platform uh, monolithic experiences. So uh, I'll admit that I only have cursory experience with most of these technologies. I've just simply never been in a role where I've had to have responsibility for managing right, a data lake or, or an infrastructure or a system that's consuming that amount of data. Um, but I am familiar enough with, um, in particular, machine learning, um, thanks to people like Rippy and others at the company who have helped me learn, of it, it's a non-traditional or, or at least a different kind of workflow than what we're used to. And in particular because, well, we are NetApp and we focus on storage, right? We're consuming storage in a different way. And you alluded to this before of... You know, at first, like, let's look at a machine learning algorithm. We have to train that algorithm. It has to do a, a huge amount of ingest on a huge amount of data in order to analyze it and build its patterns. And then we're going back and analyzing that data. And we're doing real-time analysis of new data coming in and all of these other things. So is that changing how storage systems are administered, how, how they're deployed, how they're consumed? Yeah, that's a, that's a fantastic question. And that's... Uh uh, that's certainly changing quite dramatically, and we're finding that's changing in multiple different dimensions. On the one hand, to compete with the web scale vendors, customers are having to adopt the cloud uh, in order to have the same home turf to play on. So on the one hand, they've got to shift a variety of on-prem deployments uh, into the cloud to be able to take advantage of the IP and the scale and the agility that the cloud the cloud vendors provide them. On the other hand, they're finding they've got to deal with the compliance and governance and all of the uh, all of the traditional regulatory requirements that have kept them in highly contained, secure on-premises departments in the past. Um, similarly, as they look at shifting towards uh, a web scale architecture, cost becomes. Uh, of acute focus, and they look at commodity as a means of achieving those cost points. So when we as a traditional enterprise infrastructure vendor look to play in these new emerging workloads, there's multiple different dimensions that customers are looking at. The first is the shift away from traditional on-prem to cloud storage. The second is even if you're on-prem, the shift towards commodity server-integrated DAS storage. So we find that our evolution into these emerging workloads requires us to be thinking outside of our traditional competitors and our traditional storage landscape vendors to look at what does it mean to provide the customers a superior TCO versus a solution that may be just Amazon S3 or Azure Blob or GCP based on the one side and on the other side how is the customer experience superior to a white box DAS deployed uh, server solution, whether it be from a traditional server vendor or a white box server vendor. So this is an interesting uh, space that gives us an opportunity to start to expose the value proposition of ONTAP uh, in bringing out the full TCO uh, across the storage lifecycle. So the reality is it's no longer about 
competing with uh, like-for-like set of vendors, but looking across all of the choices that customers have and being able to abstract and virtualize across some of those choices in some cases and being able to showcase the full TCO across the full life cycle in other cases to get them the, uh, the solution that only NetApp can offer with ONTAP. So you've mentioned web scale a few times, and I'd like to just kind of just define it a little bit. So could you give us a high-level definition of what web scale is? Wow, that's going back to first principles. So if we, if we take the example of, well, let's say, a retail customer that's implementing um, their supply chain inventories, let's just take an example of someone that would have a variety of uh, point-of-sale outlets. They've got to automate um, their inventory. They've got to look at optimizing their inventory to meet the profiles of the store. Uh, they've got thousands of stores nationwide, maybe even globally, uh, and they've got to look at how are they going to build out um, an optimal um, an optimal store experience in stocking inventory that makes the most sense, an optimal experience in being able to have the right sizes and the right, uh, and the right apparel that meets the customer needs, and to alter and vary that by geo, by store location, by neighborhood, maybe even by submarket. And so across a variety of those kinds of deployments and at the scale of thousands of stores nationwide or across geos, um, what you're looking at is customers starting to need to build out a central data platform, a central data architecture or a data pipeline that can serve the needs across these stores, that can bring in data from thousands of stores uh, and aggregate that data, be able to build out a data lake, a massive data lake, uh, oftentimes centralized, but many a times a data lake that can be quickly partitioned in flexible ways to look at data by geo or data by a particular store brand or data by a particular market segment and so on, and be able to slice and dice a massive data lake into views of the data that you can apply business intelligence on. So imagine a data lake that may be hundreds, if not thousands of compute nodes, a data lake that may be spun up on-prem with several hundred node clusters of Hadoop or Spark or NoSQL, um, and as an alternative, a data lake that is spun up on a cloud vendor, taking advantage of the scale and agility of the cloud, thousands of VMs um, that consist of 100 node Hadoop clusters, 100 node Spark clusters. Um, these are typically compute nodes with locally attached DAS or locally attached S3 storage. And in the case of a platform that's network storage-based, uh, they may consist of several tens of um, network storage controllers serving 100 node clusters of Hadoop or Spark or, or NoSQL. Yeah, and I just kind of compare that to the old days where you had a few web servers running IIS, right? <laughs> And they're pointing to a back end somewhere, and they would go down inevitably during retail season. And this sort of thing, this, this web scale approach, would help us kind of power those uh, data infrastructures and make sure that things stay up, as well as being able to, to chew through a lot of data in a small amount of time. And it's, and it's funny you mentioned that, because what, is, what was small at one point uh, is, is going to is going to scale out big to the point where it's unmanageable and it's going to scale down again. So in fact, it's funny you say that because what we are finding is that we're starting to see customers and, and technology vendors take a non-linear, non-traditional approach to scale. So when you reach a point where you're building 1,000-node compute servers or VMs, 
and he can't manage that anymore and he can't operationally deal with all of the challenges in those moving parts as they're being managed what customers are now doing is taking advantage of new technology like gpus which is a which is a great foray into deep learning and what you're seeing is the emergence of a new class of architecture and a new class of system architecture that shifts away from traditional cpu-based computing to gpu-based computing and a GPU, an NVIDIA V100 as an example, will give you over 40,000 cores. Now, these are tensor cores or, or GPU cores. They're not comparable like for like with your traditional CPU cores. But what you're looking at is the shift away from thousands of compute nodes back down to a handful of compute nodes that are now hosting offloaded GPUs that become the workhorse of that compute workload. So imagine now the new generation workloads that take advantage of GPUs, building out eight node scale-out systems with maybe four to eight GPUs, where each GPU can give you as much as 40,000 cores. So now we are, we are starting to look at how system architectures have to evolve to keep up with the performance, the memory, the bandwidth, and the parallelism needs of this new class of system architecture. So it's a very exciting time. Uh, I'd, I'd really say this is... Uh, this is a shift that's comparable to past shifts that we've seen from the mainframe era to the mini computing and the client-server architectures and then the web-scale architectures. So as each of those have been a decade of system architecture and design and evolution over a decade or two, we're starting to see the emergence of GPU-based architectures that today start out with deep learning uh, and solutions like that, but will soon expand into nearly every workload to be able to apply GPU technology to bring parallelism to the, uh, to the uh, workload and the solution. So why the shift from CPU to GPU? Is it because they had, you know, we had GPUs just kind of sitting around and doing nothing, essentially? I mean, they were driving graphics. I'm guessing we're talking about graphics processors, right, GPUs. And they were just driving graphics, and that's kind of a waste of resources. Is that why we went to, you know, CPU and GPU uh, methodology so that we could use all the resources in our system? Yeah, that, that's a fantastic question. I just love that question. If you look at the evolution of how compute has been used for business intelligence, uh, what we've seen is an increase in the, uh, in the amount of compute horsepower that you can apply, coupled with the increase in data sets, both from an accuracy and, and cleanness of the data and the scale of the data set. So the three things that come together to improve business intelligence is a greater amount of compute power, larger and uh, cleaner data sets, and the ability to get access to those data sets, whether you're building them yourself or you can find and curate uh, uh, off-the-shelf data sets that you can operate on. So as you take the combination of increased compute and apply that to larger growing amount of data, what you're finding is this is a perfect fit for a parallel architecture. And exploiting that parallelism is what the first generation Apache Hadoop architectures did. They basically brought in technologies like MapReduce and later on Spark to be able to build out a variety of ways that you can build out parallel job schedulers, such as the Hadoop Yarn schedulers, that can parallelize the workflow and then take the compute engines and apply them across those parallel jobs so that you're able to chunk up your data sets and apply parallel processing uh, through a MapReduce uh, framework across the data set. Now, as you do that, 
the technology vendors that have done GPUs for a living forever, so vendors like NVIDIA and AMD and so on, that have done this for graphics, have always had the ability to parallel process. In fact, if you take a step back, you can say the HPC world has always excelled at this architecture. So what we found was for a while, the big data space was was being led from an innovation perspective by the folks that had a data mindset and a web scale mindset. And what we've seen is the resurgence of other vendors that have excelled in parallel processing. And these are vendors that have done um, AI for a living, that have done supercomputers, that have done graphics processing, and that have done HPC. So it's that combined pool of IP across traditional spheres of computer science that have applied parallel processing that have taken a look at this big data wave and said, wait a minute, this is our home turf. This is what we excel at. What can we do to bring our strength to the space? So you've seen the emergence of traditional GPU vendors take on big data and create a whole new space around deep learning. And similarly, you've seen AI vendors and uh, the, the deep academics around AI and, uh, and neural networks come mainstream with the with the arrival of uh, AI and NLP and deep learning and so on. And so that's, uh, that's a fascinating trend to look at how different, different spheres of computer science have looked at data as the problem space and said, I can solve this using my traditional strengths. And that's what you're seeing. So earlier you were, you were mentioning that ONTAP is our platform of choice when we're addressing these types of workloads. Can you elaborate on why ONTAP is so well suited for these? We've been the, the file system of choice for traditional workloads that have used high-performance parallel processing uh, in, 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 uh, in the last 20 or 25 years that we've served customers in the space. This was the, the very birth of NetApp, to be able to address traditional NFS scalar file systems and traditional parallel file systems. So as you look at the emergence of deep learning as a parallel processing architecture, um, the first thing that these customers look at is the scale of the data set makes it impossible to replicate data. So a big difference between where the big data architectures were and where deep learning is going is that deep learning is a whole order of magnitude larger from a data set size. And as you start operating at that data set, I mean, we're talking a petabyte of uh, uh, of data that might be coming in or more per day. We're talking about as much as seven terabytes per IoT endpoint coming in, uh, say from an autonomous, uh, uh, an autonomous vehicle, for example. So when you start to build out such massively large data sets, leveraging commodity architectures and doing three copies of the data set just kills the architecture. So going from the big data world where you can have three copies of data on an HDFS deployment to a deep learning cluster where data is now an order of magnitude larger in scale means you want to take a step back and architect for a file system that doesn't need those three copies of data. So right there, customers start to look at what are my file systems of choice to operate a highly parallel performance uh, workload. So they start looking at a variety of file systems and often run into traditional file systems that may be optimized for streaming media, in other words, optimized for sequential uh, bandwidth performance. Uh, but what is different in this space is the ingest side of the file system is going to be seeing small random writes coming in from those IoT endpoints. 
and the eagle side of that file system is going to be seeing sequential streaming of data out of that file system into the compute caches of these GPU clusters for training. And so as you look at ONTAP, the thing that makes ONTAP particularly well-suited for this space is firstly our traditional strengths around NFS as a file system, as a mature file system of choice. Secondly, our strengths around Flex Group and the ability to bring in extreme amount of scale and performance uh, coupled with the all-flash files that is able to bring flash media performance and the latest and greatest trends around media types as we evolve from flash into NVMe and SEM and NVDIMM and so on. The combination of the media evolution, the flex group evolution from a scale-out perspective, the ability to bring the maturity of NFS, and the ongoing storage efficiency evolution that has the ability to bring down the data set sizes all creates for a very compelling TCO for customers. Lastly, as you look at the ability to do parallel processing across these data sets with GPUs, um, the ability to bring ultra-low latency, especially as you go into training and inference, is particularly interesting. And that's where we've seen the, the current and and emerging innovations in ONTAP uh, going after sub-500 microsecond latencies that become particularly interesting for deep learning. So all in all, a great story for ONTAP, for NFS, for Flex Group, for storage efficiency, and our upcoming investments around ultra-low latency. I just want to say that Justin is giddy that somebody else has brought up Flex Groups. Yeah, you beat me to it. <laughs> it's rare. Usually no one wants to bring it up. I always bring it up, though. I think you're uh, missing something here, though. We also offer the ability to do multiple protocols, right? So we can do SMB as well for workloads that require that. And we can also do FCP and iSCSI on the same systems and the same SVMs. So we have the ability to address multiple different workload connectivity types within these big data work uh, workloads, right? So they're not all NFS, right? They're not always going to use NFS. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a great point because, as we talked about earlier, customers start out with a first-level question around where do I want to deploy my solution? Am I going to go all into the cloud, and am I going to adopt the cloud as my future infrastructure provider and offload a bunch of operational issues to the cloud vendor? Uh, am I going to build this on-prem? And if I'm going to build it on-prem, what does it mean for the edge infrastructure? What does it mean for the core infrastructure? And what does it mean for different parts of the data pipeline? And to your point, as you're building out that data pipeline, whether it be on-prem or in the cloud, you have a variety of data sources. Traditional structured data excels on fiber channel, FCOE, upcoming technologies like FC, NVMe, or Fabric. And over time, will excel over high-performance key-value stores as you look at the evolution of, uh, of persistent memory and so on. On the other hand, unstructured data, such as data coming in from sensors, data coming in from a variety of IoT endpoints, uh, are all going to be naturally suited for traditional file systems. So across a variety of these data sources, ONTAP provides the opportunity to give you the best-of-breed performance uh, for the structured data workloads on data sources such as RDBMS or NoSQL or MySQL or, or emerging uh, even GPU databases for that matter. Unstructured data naturally has its affinity for Flex Group and 
file systems, and that's a choice of NFS for the traditional Unix and Linux world, and a choice of SMB for the traditional Microsoft file services world. And furthermore, as you look at hosting in the cloud, the ability to provide a file-based performance alternative to S3, which as we know, is a great solution for storage archive, but isn't necessarily the best fit for high-performance real-time analytics in the cloud. So overall, we see the variety of protocols as enabling customers to do what they need to do best with the data sources and the deployment models as they choose. So thanks for bringing that up, Justin. Um, I, uh, I, I love to go back to the unified protocols world. It's a space that I led for three or four years. Uh, the SAN world, obviously, is something that's uh, closest to my heart, and uh, thank you for taking us back to the, yeah, the want, traditional strengths of unified protocol. Yeah, I don't want to leave out SAN. I mean, we all know that NFS is where it's at, but, you know, SAN, we got love for you, too. <laughs> so um, it, also to add to that, I mean, we the clustered architecture we offer, you can do multiple disk types. You do storage tiers. We've got QoS. We've got inline efficiencies. So there's a lot going on within an ONTAP system that allows you to have flexibility and move across different types of tiers as your workloads age out. And then when you throw in things like fabric pools, which allows you to tier off to cloud or S3 object, uh, that's adding even more beneficial storage efficiencies as well. So, I mean, we have a lot of things that fit well into this machine learning, deep learning, AI sort of work structures. Yeah, and it's always interesting because we have such a powerful bag of goodies from an on-tap feature set perspective, but it's interesting to up-level that feature and what it means to the workload and to the customer uh, and really take the use case view of what the customer is trying to do for that particular IT project and how does that map to a feature that we offer. So if it's okay with you, I'd like to take an example or two of how we've been able to, to distinguish the customer experience uh, with the value that ONTAP brings, but the magic occurs in bridging from the feature set to the use case. So uh, I don't know, Andrew, what do you think? Should we take an example or two to talk about that? What do you think, Andrew? Should we allow, him to, should we allow it? Uh, survey says yes. Yes. All right, there we go. Go ahead. <laughs> So, so what we've found is as customers have moved to the web scale um, emerging third platform ecosystems, most of these ecosystems have been eventually consistent architectures. What that means is they're applying uh, a replication protocol to apply state across the different nodes uh, of that architecture. But do not wait for an acknowledgement that the replication has committed successfully across those nodes. So think about sync, replication of state uh, versus async, for example. Uh, in an architecture that's eventually consistent, when you think about what it means to do backup and restore, uh, the, the classic problem that uh, customers run into is they're trying to backup a 100-node NoSQL database cluster that's eventually consistent, and they can't get a application-consistent view of the backup that allows them for a rapid restore. So we've actually run into cases where customers that have built out complex database architectures that may span multiple data centers. Remember, these scale-out nodes can actually span data centers. So you may have architectures that are spanning three or five or six data centers across several tens of nodes across those data centers. When you're trying to apply a backup and you can't get application consistency to the backup, and you need to restore because something goes wrong, we've found that customers could run into multiple hours and even multiple days 
to get that system back up. And as these architectures go into the the core of their mission-critical business needs as they start building document databases, ticketing systems, support systems on top of these databases, it's unacceptable to be down for 24 hours when you're doing a restore. So we were able to take the the capabilities that aren't happening in terms of snapshots, flex clones, uh, unified protocol, and be able to really take our experience with Snap Managers that we have over 18 years of experience now and build out an architecture that is able to deliver a strongly consistent RPO and RTO backup experience for an eventually consistent workload. So taking an example of a NoSQL database like MongoDB, we've been able to build out the Snap Center creator for MongoDB where we're able to take data volume snapshots um, and those data volume snapshots are complemented with operational logs that are consistently tailed into an NFS volume. An operational log gives you the log of operations similar to an Oracle, uh, Oracle log file system. But the difference is the operational logs in NoSQL are eventually consistent, so they're not strongly consistent and they're not journaled and checkpointed like a traditional RDBMS would do. And we're able to take a continuous um, right stream of that operational log into an NFS volume, apply snapshots to that, and be able to archive both the data volumes and the log volumes and provide for customers a restore experience that combines the data restore with the log restore and the replay of the logs in a way that only we can do, in a way that reduces the backup experience for customers from what is a six-hour RPO the choice that customers face with some of these NoSQL databases is a six-hour RPO between backups because they've got to deal with uh, a traditional backup system down to a near-zero experience with the combination of our Snap Center for MongoDB experience. So that's an example of how we've been able to take down a very tricky pain point for customers, which is backup, and, uh, and completely evolve and, and innovate in that space using traditional on-tap features. One out of many examples in the space. And you, you mentioned backup, but we also have a strong disaster recovery uh, functionality right, with SnapMirror and SnapVault. Yeah, it's, it's another interesting uh, space that has, uh, that has had us evolving our use of SnapMirror. I mean, SnapMirror as a traditional DR interface has found less interest in the third platform as customers look at replicas. And replicas are used for load balancing. Replicas are used for uh, failure restore and recovery. Uh, and replicas are used as multi-data center load balancing. So what we've found ourselves uh, evolving towards is the use of SnapMirror in these emerging workloads becomes more interesting from a backup perspective. The fact that SnapMirror is unified across the BRE and LRSC and the ability to use LRSC for a unified SnapWall, SnapMirror experience means we're really using SnapMirror for the SnapWall off-site backup experience. And we're letting the database vendor um, take that replica, keep that replica capability, and, and do what they do best, because you can't fight the evolution of the workload. As the workload is evolved to replicas across sites, and the use of replicas for load balancing and site-level load balancing, uh, that, is, and that is a value prop that customers have embraced. And we can't fight them on that. But what we can do is allow the replicas to exist on on-tap aggregates that will dedupe the replicas down. 
So we can give the illusion of a replica while actually reducing the physical storage consumed down to a single instance across some of these replicas. So we've been able to apply a combination of storage efficiency techniques to reduce the footprint of these replicas while preserving the illusion of a replica to the application client so that you can get the benefits you, you desire from an application perspective, which is load balancing, site, site balancing, and so on, and evolve the snap mirror experience to be a snap vault or a backup experience. So that's, that's been one of our learnings that uh, you don't want to fight where customers want to go. You don't want to fight where the workload partner wants to go. You want to evolve with those two and be able to take advantage of our technology to, to address the new white space gaps in this market. And that's the beauty of ONTAP because you can actually take a technology like, like BRE and LRSC and find it is a smooth evolution from DR to be a backup and a vault experience. Similarly, SnapLock has been another interesting one where a number of these vendors that are building the emerging databases simply do not have the ability to offer SEC uh, compliance in some of these, uh, some of these regulatory uh, situations. And so the ability to bring SnapLock into these environments is another of ONTAP's, uh, ONTAP's benefits that we can uh, complement in these, in these new workloads. You forgot something. Flex- I'm sure I did. FlexClone. <laughs> Call me on it. FlexClone. Flex clone, yes. I was, I was uh, holding back for, for some of these. <laughs> Flex clone is a fantastic example, and I'll take a deep learning example here with Flex clone. When you look at deep learning as, a, as an application of unsupervised learning to achieve uh, a validation of a hypothesis or an automated business insight, uh, the reality is the same data set is being sliced and diced to achieve different validations of different hypotheses or different validations by different groups. That may be a marketing focus or a manufacturing focus or a supply chain focus or a a product management focus. Each of those functional groups has a different hypothesis in mind, but operating on the same data. So in our own case, you may be looking at um, maybe sales data from SFDC or EBI and so on, but you may have different parallel hypotheses that are being run by different functional groups within NetApp. The ability to take a flex clone of the data and apply completely different QS policies, maybe even different RBAC policies, and be able to even segment it out into a different set of clients that are accessing it all open up the ability to do more with less. So we're looking at the power of FlexClone in the, in the new world of a centralized data lake that can enable different data scientist communities and different functions across the business to achieve different outcomes out of their view of the data lake. So fantastic experience bringing together the combination of uh, multi-tenancy, whether it be SVM-based or uh, logical tenancy, uh, the ability to apply RBAC, and the ability to take a uh, flex clone-based efficient view of the data set. So here at NetApp, what are some examples of us using the deep learning AI stuff just off the top of your head? So we've barely just begun, but I would say ActiveIQ is a fantastic example. ActiveIQ is the evolution of what we used to traditionally look at as ASAP or auto support and the historical strength of being able to aggregate 
vast amounts of install base real-time and post-process data out of our install base systems to be able to look at that from a uh, support perspective. And as we've evolved in the ASAP architectures, the ASAP data lake has started to take advantage of these technologies. And ActiveIQ today is a great example where we bring together the combination of Hadoop, Spark, Deep Learning, NoSQL, and all of these technologies that we've talked about, building out tens of nodes of clusters to 100-node cluster of Cloudera that can really look at data from an intelligent perspective, make real-time analysis decisions, and be able to help be uh, a more effective real-time support experience for our customers in the field. So fantastic example. You should probably look at a, a full deep dive on ActiveIQ in one of the upcoming episodes. I know that team would be delighted to, to be here with you in the uh, in the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. We've already been in discussions with getting them on. Uh, and we actually did an episode with Ross Ackerman on episode 110. Uh, we talked about automated support with Elio and IBM Watson and the work being done there. So we'll definitely be hearing more about that in the near future. Okay, you got anything else for us, Santosh? No, this has been fascinating. I think we, we can keep going on and on like this, but uh, it just uh, is eye-opening to see the amount of innovation and change that's happening in the ecosystem space. Um, I think that, that there's uh, ample opportunity for us to look at how we can be the, the steward of, uh, of data across this uh, rapidly disrupting and changing ecosystem space. I mean, if you look at just the database world, the number of new databases that have come up in the last three to five years uh, exceeds um, by an order of magnitude anything that we've seen in the past 20, 25 years. So I think when you're looking at data management, customers look for stability, and uh, and we see ourselves playing a role that is able to be the guardian of data, the steward of data in the midst of a changing uh, and disrupting uh, ecosystem space. So, fantastic time to be looking at uh, helping customers through their uh, through their changing and rapidly evolving business needs. And I understand you have a few blogs on blog.netup.com uh, re- regarding this sort of stuff. Yes, thanks for calling that out. We have a, a blog that uh, that is uh, you can find it under my name, and that looks to highlight the data pipeline. Oftentimes, we take a, a, uh, a infrastructure view of data, we take a controller or a data center or a cluster view of data, but it's fascinating to step away from all of that and take a pipeline view of data. Take a view of data from cradle to grave, if you will, and that's what the block tries to do. It looks at data as a pipeline and how different components in that pipeline have different needs uh, and how ONTAP as a data platform can address the, uh, the diverse needs of that data pipeline. Yeah, and we'll include those links in the show notes uh, in the blog that we post with this podcast as well. Thank you for uh, having me here today, and appreciate the opportunity to share where we are going with uh, with ONTAP and the third platform. Yep, thank you for joining us. All right, that music tells me it's time to go. If you'd like to get in touch with us, send us an email to podcast at netup.com or send us a tweet at netup. As always, if you'd like to subscribe, find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher, or via techontappodcast.com. If you like the show today, leave us a review. On behalf of the entire Tech on Tap podcast team, I'd like to thank Santosh Rao for joining us today. As always, thanks for listening. You know, I could really use some additional, you know, some help with my learning. Mm, I don't know that we can help you there. You know, 
just incorporate a little uh, machine in there to help help with the deep learning. And, turn you uh, into a Borg. Yeah. I could be an artificial intelligence. Sprinkle in a little on tap. Is it just mm-hmm. me that's getting off on this? And some oh, flex yeah. groups. Definitely some flex groups. Make sure there's flex groups. Got always gotta be flex groups. NFS if you want. Or block it. We don't care. Just use what you like. So long as it's flex groups. So long as it's flex groups. You can't do block and flex groups. Yeah. <laughs> so NFS or SIPs. But anything you like. <laughs>